Hey folks, welcome back for another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is Jeff Benjamin along with my colleague Bruce Kelly, BK. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Jim Dandy down here. We have a couple of great stories for you to look at this week. Yeah, this is a good one. I'm looking forward to this. GPB Capital, a bleep storm, as BK would describe it. We have a uh, a lawyer to to come on and talk to us all about that, Jason Kane. And then after that, we have uh, Rick Ferry to talk to us about advisory fees, an ongoing fee and uh, dust up uh, that this week started on Twitter and it just keeps going. But uh, but first, Bruce, I'm going to kick it over to you to introduce Jason. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to our guests this week because this is really about kind of nitty gritty money issues, you know, for <laughs> for brokers selling products for the first issue, the first topic rather with GPB and then the next with advisory fees. So um, I'm looking forward to this episode. First, before we start talking to Jason, I just want to remind people that GPB Capital has been a story we've been following since the winter of 2018, so almost three years now. It was a big seller of private placements that invested in auto dealerships primarily and trash hauling businesses. And those investments were supposed to generate returns uh, kind of promised returns of around 8% to investors. GPB has been a big worry for investors and advisors. 17,000 investors bought this product uh, that was sold for these 8% returns. It's been a big worry for many people because the firm has not been able to produce audited financial statements. It's been very opaque. And the FBI raided its offices a couple of years ago. And then the stuff really hit the fan, Jeff, last week when three senior executives at GPB Capital, including the owner, a gentleman named David Gentili, were indicted for fraud by the Department of Justice, as well as charged with civil fraud by the SEC. And a number of states got involved here. So our guest this week, Jason Kane, is an attorney with Pfeiffer, Wolf, Kane. And a couple of other guys too, uh, Pfeiffer, Wolf, Carr, Kane, and Conway. And Jason is one of the attorneys that's working on a lawsuit, purported class action lawsuit against GPB and dozens of the broker dealers that sold it. So, with all that as an introduction, I'm sorry it took so long. Jason, how are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, this will be a fun topic to discuss. I'll be I know you, we've one, talked so about this before, Jason. Just could you just tell us what happened with these criminal and civil indictments last week? With yeah, it was uh, ki- kind of an amazing event that the criminal. It's something we've been waiting for, though. Right? Yeah, Where it, 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 well, you know, we, you know, Bruce, you and I met met in New York City. I think it was in October of 2019. Yes, my law firm announced the filing of our class action down in Austin, Texas. That's right. And it, it seemed pretty obvious to us back then that GPB was in major trouble and that the investors who had invested in it were going to suffer significant losses. So what what is the SEC and the Department of Justice, what did they charge GPB with? And what does that mean for the brokers that sold the product, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that what they've charged them with is, is as you said, fraud. There are many sort of salacious allegations 
about you know money transferring between GPB Capital, the founders of GPB. You mentioned David Gentili. There's a guy named Schneider, Lash, Martino. All these guys are the guys who who sort of started GPB and through an opaque system of you know the issuer, the broker dealer firms have all profited to the tunes to the tune of you know millions of dollars. There's allegations about Porsches and trips and and all sorts of things. But the bottom line is that money was, you know, $1.8 billion was solicited. That was the money raised. That's how much the GPB capital sold in private placements. And the brokers that sold it collected the commissions of like seven or eight percent on that, right? Correct. And it it it's just it's just amazing that this is still going on. You know, I represent, you know, hundreds of people, most of whom are just mom and pop investors, retail investors who put a pretty good chunk of their retirement savings into a Ponzi scheme so that these guys could funnel money to themselves. But it's a private placement. So you have to be an accredited investor to be sold a a, a private placement. Why should I? That's supposed to be a rich person, right? Well, you're supposed to be. I mean, we could have a... The the topic of accredited investor is, uh, and the definition of such is is a whole podcast, guys. Um, and how that <laughs> how that hasn't changed since 1982. But I can assure you that I've talked to many people who've lost money in GPB who are who were not accredited investors. Number one, and that is a pretty clear sales violation because they're well, supposed the to be. Well, brokers are going to get in, in hot water with Finra or the SEC if that is true. If your they assertion should. is true, because that's what happened 10, 15 years ago when. These brokers, some of them, the same firms, mm-hmm. sold private placements that were also frauds or Ponzi schemes, meaning right. Medcap and Provident royalties. Mm-hmm. Yep, I remember those cases. Right. So that those a lot of that product was sold uh, at, to investors, and they're supposed to be accredited, but they were never accredited investors there. Right. Right. Yeah, Jason, I don't want to. I don't want to get too far off track with with this point, but how. Doesn't anybody track down or monitor or whether or not these people are accredited when they buy these things when they're supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, typically if a broker dealer is doing their the bare minimum, there will be something in the file that gets signed by, you know, usually a, a, the investor. I have seen instances where where things are forged, but the investor in a pile of paperwork that is put forth by their trusted advisor signs off on, on something that says, you know, that I have a million dollars or more outside of my residence, which is right, okay. a loose definition of an accredited investor. How that happens, I mean, I've talked to tons of investors over the course of my career where they say, you know, I kind of saw this and I and I asked a question and they said, you know, well, don't don't worry about that. You know, you can include mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone else's money to get to a million, um, or, you know, this is a great deal. Go ahead and sign it. Or, you know, a lot of times what happens is it's in the pile of paperwork and, you know, it just gets signed because there's a sticky note on there that says, right. you know, sign but, here. And they're dealing with somebody not, they trust. I mean, people shouldn't be getting ripped off, obviously. But um, is, this a, is this a black mark in all private placements or is this unique to GPB and what they were allegedly doing? This is a warning bell, I think. I mean, uh-huh. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a black mark on all private placements. I'm, I'm sure there are good private placements. As a good plaintiff's lawyer, I'm probably a little jaded about private placements. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think when it should be that when a broker is putting someone in a private placement, or if or and any investor who's listening to this, when you are getting into a private placement, you need to know that it's private. There's not a market for it. You're placing a much higher degree of trust in the ultimate, you know, of the people you're ultimately giving your money in than, uh, you know, your typical stock or bond that's traded, you know, on the stock exchanges. Right. But the, the biggest thing about being private is, is liquidity. That's the thing you lose in a, in a private market. Absolutely. And to me, what I understand, and I don't understand this nearly as well as Bruce, he, he kind of lives and breathes this particular company. I know for a fact, and, and people should go to Investment News and, and look at his coverage. It's fantastic. Thank what you, I'm saying sir. Is, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I'm saying is these particular investments, are are they bad because they're because of the way they're sold or the way they're structured. And and I know you said you don't want to paint them all as bad, but we're talking about some bad ones here, apparently. Yeah. Well, G- GPB, you know, from what I've learned about GPB is that any, anybody, but the broker dealers are the ones who have the responsibility to do it. But anyone who peeled back the covers just a little bit on GPB back before everyone was selling it, and pitching it to retail investors. And, and at first, it, J, uh, Jason, if I just interrupt, this launched in 2013. Right. And then basically stopped taking new money at the end of tw- in 2018 or at the end of 2018. Right. So and you're talking went, about a five-year window, right? And, and it's really, you know- And I it mean, raised almost $2 billion. Almost $2 billion. Just, just, mm-hmm. just, just think yeah. about that, man. It's funny the way it worked, Bruce. Where, you know, in the beginning, in the first two and a half years or so, it's really just what we call the captive broker dealer, Ascendant slash Axiom. Ascendant Axiom, right. Raising the money for GPB. In eh, towards the end of 2016, you know, 2017 and into the early part of 2018, that's when they really sort of spread their tentacles out into these, you know, 60 or 70 other broker dealer firms. Uh, and they really start, they enter into contracts with, with those broker-dealer firms. And those broker-dealer firms really start pitching this. And, and you know, I've, I've seen a ton of people who have purchased GPB through these independent broker-dealer firms. Are there lockup periods when you buy these things initially, like a lot of uh, private investments? Do you have to hold you can't them get your money out? Yes. Do you have to hold them for a certain amount of time? Or are they somewhat liquid? I have not yet talked to the person who was able to get out of GPB. Okay. The the pitch though, Jeff, the pitch is that you're going to start getting 8% right away. Right. Right. It's almost like the old non-traded REIT where we're going to yeah. give you, we're going to give you the, the dividend of the yield of five, six, seven, eight percent right away. And we haven't even invested your money in, in real estate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why these things are can be worrisome and dangerous for individual investors. If they, if you're a, a, a sponsor out there guaranteeing a return, a pretty good return of 8% right off the bat without even buying anything with it, you know? So what happened though here and what the government is alleging, right, Jason, is that GPB wound up never being able to cover its funds from operation to the extent where that it had enough cash flow to pay the 8% and it was essentially dipping into investor money to pay the 
dividend or distribution, as they call it. Let me just read an email from Jeffrey Schneider that was cited in the Department of Justice indictment, criminal indictment from last week. This was back in March of 2016. David Gentili sent a text message to Jeff Schneider and Jeff Lash in which he stated, guys, to get the coverage ratio on one of these portfolios, we we need cash back to the company of approximately $600,000. And Schneider replies, we have to man up and write checks, which is simply giving back dollars we already received. <laughs> That's right. in the indictment. Now, I don't know how you don't illustrate a Ponzi scheme any more clearly than that. GPB, let me read a statement from the company at this point in time and then hand it back over to Jason. This is from the press person from, the, from GPB from last week when we first broke this news about the criminal indictment. GPB has been cooperating with government investigations and is extremely disappointed by these developments. GPB denies these allegations and intends to vigorously defend itself in court where for the first time, the firm will be able to present significant evidence in its favor. GPB remains confident that the firm acted in good faith during many years of managing funds for investors. Jason. Right. And the, you know that, that comment is very similar to the letter they've sent off to all their investors, which I got to say is very similar to the letters in tone anyway to the letters they've sent to the investors since 2018 when they haven't been able to issue financials and when auditors are refusing to sign off on audits and withdrawing. You know, this is bad. I mean, I think marketing materials indicate that that it's not just a return of money. And yet we've got internal email between GPB saying, yeah, we've got to just return their money. You know, this was a cash cow for the people who started it and these investors, you know, unless they hire lawyers and seek losses and, and you know, they're going to be left holding the bag. Did these, did any of these investors get, or were they getting the, those 8% returns promised to them, even if they haven't gotten their, their principal back? Yeah. So they got the, they, they, they made distributions again, which seems like they were really just return on pr- of principal mm-hmm. until the middle of 2018. And that's, that's when it kind of hit the fan. And they made one other distribution, sort of a random one yeah. recently. But yeah, no, it's, it's been since 2018 since there's been anything regular. But it, it, it does, the GPB does own 36 auto dealerships. So the, the, the organization does own some assets. And the SEC this week, the most recent thing that we wrote about today was the SEC this week it filed a petition with the court essentially to put its own guy in charge of GPB and get David Gentili resigned at the end of last week as the CEO. He remains the owner, but they put in their own CFO as the new CEO. So the SEC this week said, no, we don't want that. We want our own guy in there because we're afraid that they're going to sell those remaining auto dealerships. And then who knows what's going to happen with the money, right? So right. They're, yes. what's happening now is a fight for control over the assets, basically. Is it going to remain in private hands, uh, you know, and the company's owner is being indicted for fraud, or is it going to be in the hands of the SEC and potentially, I, I guess, a receivership at some point? Correct. Well, are, 
has anybody is it too soon to uh get a, a sense for what those auto auto dealerships might be worth that's, <laughs> that's where all question. the money's coming from right it's a great question uh, yeah. that's the only yeah. thing they own correct that that uh, they might own other stuff i'm they not i'm not certain okay. but that's that's what was in the sec's court filing are they, and, okay yeah you're right. right there's that's, no way to understand it there, to understand 36 it auto dealerships i don't know if that's worth 1.7 billion or well, I've never personally who bought knows an auto what they own of the dealerships. Do they own the whole thing? Do they own oh, a percentage yeah. of point. it? Are they minority? Are they majority? What's well, the funding? Is, it, How much does the bank things, own? But it was it was like a, a leasing deal, right? I mean, sort of like a REIT. Their their income comes from the rent. That might and, have been part of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Jason, you have any final kind of comments here? You know, the the only thing that I would say is that. It's amazing that this continues to happen. This is, uh, unlike the Madoff Ponzi schemes, this was distributed by FINRA registered broker-dealers and solicited. And, you know, people were going to people, investors were going to brokerage firms who they thought were legitimate, and they were getting sold GPB. Uh, and GPB turned out to be a, it sure seems clear that GPB was a $1.8 billion Ponzi scheme. And it's it's just it's kind of sad and kind of amazing that that's that still goes on. So I guess th- those are those are my final thoughts. I hope I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. I can't believe that after the MedCap Ponzi, which was a billion or two billion or something, I can't even recall. It, 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 I remember thinking it was very similar to the GPB. It, it's like almost they almost mirror each other. Yeah, and and Provident Royalties, which was another six or seven hundred million. And and Bernie Madoff and Alan Stanford, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. that you could have something that was taken from if these allegations are true, if the allegations are true, this is taken from the same playbook. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like someone at these broker dealer firms should have remembered Stanford and Provident. Right. And that <laughs> you know, I mean, it, but but here we are again. History so repeats. It, it is it's a <laughs> lesson that we will learn probably for the rest of our lives. All right, Jason. Well, thank you very much for coming on today, man. We really appreciate it. You got it. It was really nice chatting with you guys. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Okay, good stuff. Now we've got our second guest, Rick Ferry of Ferry Investment Solutions. We're going to talk about fees in the financial advisory space, always a hot topic. Uh, Mike Kitsis came out with some research on February 8th, and uh, Rick stirred the pot a little bit on Twitter with some uh, comments about <laughs> how you, much Rick. it... <laughs> Stir that pot, man. <laughs> and uh, talking about the uh, the fees that are... Well, we, we start with asset-based pricing, and, and Rick, I'd love to you to tell your story. I know you and I have already talked about it, but Kind of set the stage a little bit, if you will, on the the whole fee debate. Well, I'll tell my story in two minutes or less. Uh, so I was originally a broker. When I left active duty in the Marine Corps back in 1988, I went to work for Kidder Peabody. Oh, and wow. I thought back then I thought it was brokers were advisors and that they researched things and did well for their clients. Oh, they salesmen. What are you talking I didn't, about? I didn't, but I didn't know that back then because uh, like like most people, you don't know. I mean, you think that they're, you know, you get the impression that when EF Hutton talks, people listen. Anyway. 
So I did that oh, I and it. I went there and I went through the broker boot camp, basically is what it was. And I uh, got my series seven and insurance licenses and did all those things that you're supposed to do as a good broker. And then, uh, and then the bottom ooh, fell out of the market. Uh, actually, that occurred before I went in. So I was on the rebound by the time I, in fact, I was actually uh, on a deployment at that time when I was in the Marine Corps when the bottom fell out. And ironically, a different story is uh, right before I left, I wanted to make sure my wife was going to be okay. If, so I took all my money out of stocks and I put it all into a CD right before I went overseas. And that was about a month before the market collapsed. So I was a brilliant market <laughs> timer. <laughs> for doing that. I figured I must have had skill. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the brokerage industry, I went into the brokerage industry and started talking with different money managers and finding out that they all had this thing called a Charter Financial Analyst Charter, CFA. And I said, that's probably something I should get. So I started working on that. I ended up ultimately getting that. In the meantime, switched over to Smith Barney. I uh, left Kidder Peabody when they were collapsing uh, back in 1994. And then- Were you uh, in New York with Smith Barney or, or, or where, Rick? No, I was actually in Michigan. I was uh, oh, recruited okay. by a fellow who decided uh, wanted to put together a office full of former military people. I was a, a former fighter pilot, carrier pilot. So we had oh my gosh. All, all kinds of military people in our office from all different walks, you know, uh, army rangers and intelligence people. It was a high speed crew, <laughs> no doubt about it. Right. Uh, and anyway, we, he had this idea that we would all be great Brokers. Well, I, I think a few of us are still in the industry, but but not everybody stayed in. <laughs> anyway, what happened was um, I began to have this epiphany that maybe what we were doing wasn't in the best interest of clients. And I happened to have that epiphany when I listened to John Vogel speak in 1996 at a CFA annual conference. I believe it was uh, in Atlanta or Charlotte. And uh, he had just resigned as a CEO of Vanguard because he had had, had a heart transplant right. and he right. couldn't continue. But this was right after that. It was the first time he spoke and I listened to him and I said, why? What he, make, what he says makes just so much sense because I see it in the data that I was uh, doing, uh, looking at uh, performance of what we were recommending and the money managers we were recommending. Anyway, I finally got his book, Vogel on Mutual Funds, a, a few months later and I began reading it and, and I had my aha moment. And my aha moment actually occurred when I was sitting in a parking lot late October while my kids were going through a house of horrors and it was nighttime <laughs> and they're going through the house of horrors and there's all kinds of screaming mm. in the background and chainsaws going on and lights flashing and all that. And I'm in my car screaming and yelling at the investment industry because I was reading Jack Bogle's book and I was having this chemical reaction in my head that my gosh, this guy is right. I mean, he's right. Right. Uh, and, and there are people like me out there and I felt better about that. You but felt anyway, it in your the- gut, in other words, in your gut and your bones. Right. I was happy. I was sad and I was happy. And it was a lot of different emotions, you know, when you have this reaction. And, and I was happy that I found people who were like me and also sad that it was actually going on. But it was. Anyway, but that it was articulated, right? I mean, that it was being articulated to you, in you other know, words. That was the business. Rick, let's, yeah. get, let's get to the aha moment. I mean, we want to talk about the fee issues here, right? Right. I mean, the aha moment was simply most people would be better off if they just put all of their money in a few low cost index funds and be done with it. Finished. All over. It's all you need to do. And you're going to be better than 95, maybe even more percent of all other investors out there. I mean, that was the message. And that was true. That's what I was seeing in the data that I was analyzing for my clients. And it it was absolutely true. So I I left the, the brokerage industry in 1999 and started my own RIA, 
where we were going to manage portfolios. It was just me working out of my living room and my wife was doing the paperwork. And we were going to manage money using uh, Vanguard funds and ETFs and a couple of dimensional fund advisor funds, DFA. And I charged a very low fee. I charged one quarter of 1%. That is what I believed was fair. And how did I come up with that number? One quarter of 1%. Well, I actually had a conversation with an American funds rep. So these reps would go around the offices at various Smith Barney and all the other brokerage firms. And I uh, asked him to come into my office and I, I asked him about if I put a million dollars in American funds, how much would my clients have to pay in commission? And he said, zero. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, they get in at NAV. And so if you diversified your million dollar client into US stocks, international stocks, and bonds, they literally get in at NAV. They don't pay any commission. And you get a 12B1 fee, a 25 basis point trailing commission. I said, okay. I said, what? And what is that trailing commission supposed to be for that I get? And his answer was, well, that's for you to oversee the client, you know, talk with the client, you know, advise the client on which funds to be in, asset allocation changes and such, and just, you know, be an advisor to the client. I said, you know what? I think that's a fair fee. And so that's what I started charging when I left and I started my first company. I charged 25 basis points, but instead of using American funds, I was using a low cost index funds. Vanguard funds, some ETFs that were available and so forth. And I was putting these portfolios together. The total cost of the portfolios with my 0.25% fee included was about 50 basis points. And I thought that was fair. And so didn't my clients. And that's how it all got started with this idea of you don't need to make a lot of money as an advisor. You don't need to charge a lot of money. My profit margin was very high when I was working out of my living room. But even as the firm grew to a billion dollars or more, and I had up to 20 employees. I mean, our profit margins were still 30%, charging a quarter of a percent. So you don't need to go out there and charge 1% to make a good living for yourself. And you can do it in a low fee and be fair to the clients. Right. But the, that 30% that profit margin, that's kind of right up there with industry average. How do firms charging 1% only have a profit margin of 30%? That doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah. So I can't speak for why your expenses rise as your revenues rise. Uh, you know, maybe they do client appreciation nights, you know, buy, uh, bring everybody together at uh, football games, baseball games, pay for dinners. Mm -hmm. I, I can't. Uh, I, hey, real, I had a real estate, pretty, pretty right? Real shift. estate is always expensive. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, you had expensive offices, office space, and you just seem to, you know, if you're bringing in a lot of revenue, your expenses seem to go up and it ends up seem to be leveling out about 30%. Well, we kept our overhead pretty darn low. And I remember the first tables that I, I put into the first office, I went to Costco and I bought these cheap folding tables and I, that was our office. It was full of cheap folding tables. And that, that's, that's how we operated. And uh, we were able to keep overhead very low and, you know, give the clients mm -hmm. a good deal. And that's what I did. And, and it worked. My point was the, the clients appreciated the fact that we kept our overhead low. I still made a good profit margin. So I did fine. And it worked. So why is it that other advisors have to get 1%? I don't know. 
That's what's been my question for 20, almost 25 years now. So, so what Flynn, was the, co- Jeff, what was the controversy? <laughs> Get back to the original point with, with Michael Kitsis yeah, and, yeah, that's, and that, what's that's the tension here? The, the, the report that came out, and this isn't the first time somebody's looked at it this way, and you kind of singled in or zeroed in on this, Rick, is the, that you, you saw the median fee to put together a plan was $2,500 in 2020, according to Kitsis' research. And you looked at that and said, well, if you've got a client with a million bucks, uh, you're making $10,000 a year off this person, even if that first year, your your introductory plan and all the other things you have to do to get a client ready to bring on board, you might be able to justify a higher fee. But going forward, if really all you're doing is managing assets, $10,000 a year seems rich. That's That was your point, right, Rick? Sure. So, you know, Michael had done this study, he does it every year, and every year it comes in just about the same numbers. The cost to get a full financial plan, full-blown financial plan, always seems to come in about 2500 because he asks the people who do his survey who are doing just financial planning, you know, what does it cost to do a financial plan? And they ask people who are charging by the hour. He asks people who are charging some sort of a fixed fee. And it comes in at 2500 And lo and behold, in this latest survey, it came in at 2500 Now, you know, then there's portfolio management on top of that. And I know what portfolio management costs. It costs 25 basis points. Not only was I doing it at 25 basis points, Betterman does it at 25 basis points. And so doesn't uh, Wealthfront do it at 25 basis points. Vanguard does advising and portfolio, you know, the, the plan and money management at 30 basis points. So, you know, we all know what money management costs. So let's do the math. So if it's 2500 to do the full-blown financial plan, $2,500 on a, and then it's, if you have a million dollar client, if it's uh, another $2,500 a year to manage the portfolio going forward, how do you come up with $10,000 a year every single year? When the first year <laughs> might be the expensive year where you have a $2,500 plan, but you don't do a full-blown financial plan every single year. So where does this 1% come in? And I've been asking that, again, for, for a long time, and nobody seems to have a good answer. Now, you also talked about this being a, a fiduciary issue, right? If you're, a, if you're a fiduciary, do asset-based fees make sense, and do they make sense at that level of 1%? Well, I, I'm not against asset-based fees as long as they're reasonable. The fee that advisor charge should be aligned with the work they actually do. That's my bottom line. And mm-hmm. if you can show me that the fee, the AUM fee that you charge is aligned with the time and the work and the effort that you actually put into each client, I have no problem with that because that's the way the business should be. That's acting as a fiduciary. It's when you can't justify it. And let me give you an example. You have two clients. Uh, you're, you're an RIA, you charge 1%. You have two clients. One client has $500,000 um, across six different accounts. Uh, an IRA for her, an IRA for him, a Roth for her, a Roth for him, a couple of joint accounts. And so six different accounts need to be managed. You're charging 1%. So that client gets charged $5,000 a year, and you have to manage six different accounts. And then you have another client who has one IRA rollover for $2 million. 
that client gets charged 1%. That client gets charged $20,000 for that one IRA rollover. Now, this just doesn't make sense. You're charging the first client who has $500,000 under management, $5,000 to manage six accounts. And you're charging this one client who has $2 million, $20,000 a year to manage one IRA rollover. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't align. There's absolutely no alignment there. It's completely flipped. So, you know, I put poised this question to advisors who are charging 1%. They, they just don't have an answer. Well, their answer is, you're a jerk. You're stupid. Get out of here. I mean, that, that seems to me what well, the, the, gotta, ones that, the ones that are more diplomatic might say things like some clients are, are loss leaders. Some clients cost you more money. On average, that 1% makes sense. I personally have a hard time with that because of when you look at the long term, if they're really just doing portfolio management. But another thing that advisors say when it comes to fee-based in general is that you have it puts the clients on the same side of the table as the advisor. It kind of eliminates the the issues over charging by the hour or something like that with hourly calls. And it also presents a, a kind of a a long-term retainer model. And that's how I think a lot of advisors are justifying the the 1% is that it's a it's they call it they they look at it as like a retainer fee. Like maybe you don't need, need me this year as much as you might need me next year or the year after that. But that is kind of into the whole, you know, whether or not fee-based is better than something else. And your point I know is that fee-based is just too high. And a lot of people will come back to that and say this is what the market will bear, right? That it, yeah, it, yeah. people are paying one. Per, people wouldn't pay one percent if if they didn't feel like they were getting one percent. In the brokerage world, it's it's it runs between say sixty to seventy basis points on the low end to one hundred to one hundred and ten basis points on mm-hmm. the high end. And I think yeah. on the on the higher end side of the business on that on the upside of that say is an Ameriprise Financial. And Ameriprise and I, I've asked Ameriprise about this in the past. And they say, well, we give a lot of service to our clients. We give them, we do the planning. They sell a lot of, their big hook is their financial planning process and that everything is tied to that. So that's kind of how they, and then on the lower end, you have like an LPL, which is just a service platform. And they're saying, we're selling you services, you know, and you custody your assets with us. And we'll give you a pretty good deal. And then the wirehouses all run between the gamut of that. But I think just to, and then Rick, I'm going to throw it back over to you. But I think the 1% is just kind of there because everyone's kind of lazy (laughs) to me, you know, and are saying, ah, it's 1%. It's always been 1%. 1% is good. And I think then you have like a Rick Ferry come along and, and kind of pushing back on that notion and, and saying to people, you got to justify this a little bit more aggressively than you're doing, and people don't want to hear it. Rick? Well, I know, but it's been going on a long time. Realize I started with this messaging back in 1999 when I launched my firm. So, ago. you know, yeah. I mean, more than 20 years ago, right? So, uh, I mean, I've been on this for a long, long, long time. And not, I, I don't in any way compare myself to Jack Bogle, but I mean, it took Vanguard probably 12 or 13 years before people started waking up to the fact that, you know, mutual fund fees matter and advisor fees matter too. Uh, you know, I call it the last bastion of gluttony in the investment business is advisor fees. 
So, uh, you know, it, it, it does matter. It does matter, especially oh, of with course it does. The low interest rates and, you know, the returns of stocks maybe being lower going forward because valuations are stretched right now and all that. I mean, it really, it really does matter when you're, when you've got a million dollars and maybe your safe withdrawal rate from that amount, if you're retiring is 3% and you got to give one third of that to your advisor, that's a lot of money and you need to look for ways to cut back. But this idea that, well, it's what the market will bear. I have a real issue with that. Now, advisors, RIAs by default, when they fill out their ADV and they send it to the SEC, they are fiduciaries, which means you're supposed to be looking at fees. And that means all fees, not just the custodial fees, not just the mutual fund fees, all fees, including your own. Now, if you're out there charging 1% per year on a million dollar portfolio or a $2 million portfolio, and you know that the cost of doing that somewhere else is a lot lower than what you're charging, and you're not doing a full-blown financial plan, or you're not meeting with the client, what, every month for two hours, a month, or whatever, whatever it takes to actually justify all that money that you're charging, as a fiduciary, aren't you supposed to say, you know what, I think that I should rethink my fees and align them better with the actual work that I do for each client. As a fiduciary, that's what you're supposed to do. This is where everything is missed. You can make good money charging a quarter of a percent per year. I know, I did it. You can make good money charging a small AUM fee to manage the portfolio. When the, cli when the client needs other services on occasion, then you charge extra. You charge maybe an hourly fee for the extra time that you put into either doing a financial plan or, or redoing something or, or so forth. I mean, in other words, there's an advisor fee to do the, the advice part of it. And then there's an ongoing portfolio management fee, which is more aligned with a quarter of a percent or 0.3 or something like that. I think that's a fairer model to the clients than just mm -hmm. saying it's 1% regardless of whether or not I do anything for you any given year, it's 1%. I just don't think that's fair. It is a fairer model when you describe it that way. But the, the thing that's interesting about this is unlike shopping for other services or products, advisor clients just don't look at things that way for some reason. Why isn't there something- They don't know what they're paying. They don't why, know what they're paying. Why, yeah. why isn't there something forcing this down? We've seen fee pressure across the financial services industry, except for the part where the, the person facing the actual client. And I think it's largely because the advisory business is so much a referral business. Somebody's going to say, hey, you, you got to see my guy. My guy's, you know, I've been working with him forever. <laughs> um, they don't sit there and go through the phone. Well, if there was a phone book anymore, they don't sit there and do <laughs> Google searches and say, hey, yeah. um, you know, what's the lowest cost? I mean, I know the SEC is trying to come up with some kind of a, a rating system for advisors, and maybe that will provide a little more transparency. But there's so much inertia there from the financial advisory space. And you can understand why. If you're all hugging that 1% asset-based fee, you're like, leave us alone. You're trying to kill the golden goose, Rick Barry. Yeah. Okay. So all that. Uh, look, I'm not going <laughs> to yeah, convince think of anybody. All the private equity companies that are buying all these RIPs, Rick. If you <laughs> pop the bubble, you're going to piss all those guys off, man. You know? Yeah. Well, because they're buying, they're buying at, the, at a valuation of a certain fee coming in, probably in that range that I described of 60 to 70 to 100, 210. 
basis oh, know, points, they're, not they're down, paying up. not down at 25 basis points. Rick. I know they're paying up, but I, I don't think they have any fear of the those businesses losing assets. It's not what this is all about, in my opinion. No, I mean, actively managed mutual funds didn't go away when index funds outperformed all most of them in every single category across the board. Active funds didn't go away. They still they still exist. They still charge fees. They still make money. Brokerage firms didn't go away when uh, RIA started leaving and starting up their own shops and you know doing no-load funds and charging a AUM fee. Brokerage firms are still there. So this isn't going to go away either. This 1% fee, if you're already charging it out there, you're going to continue to charge it. You're not going to decide you're going to lower your standard of living. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going to continue to charge that 1% as long and you're going to justify it till you know, death do you part. Right, uh, and, and you're going to try to find an exit strategy in the end where you get the best value you can out of your 1%. And then you're going to kind of wipe your forehead and go, whew, glad I'm out of that. <laughs> but the bottom line is, what am I talking? Who am I speaking to? Who are the people who are calling me and saying, Rick, I love your model. I want to talk with you about it. They're young advisors. They're people who are not yet in the business, but are going to want to go into the business. They are people who are saying, I've been listening to you, Rick, and I've been reading you uh, on Twitter, and, and I like what you say, and I want to do things that way. I want to do things the right way. Help me create uh, a model where I don't have to go out and charge 1%. So I, I'm speaking to the next generation of advisors. And you know what? Michael Kitsis did too, and Alan Moore. When they started XY Planners, it was all about a subscription fee. That's what they, they wanted to get away from. AUM. They wanted to go to subscription fees, which is simply the clients paid $150 to $300 a month. That's what they were all about. Now, they weren't able to do that because they got too much pushback from the advisors and XY planners. So they kind of had to change their tune a little bit and say, well, okay, you know, well, uh, you know, AUM is okay too. But that's because you know, they just got too much pushback. And, and Cheryl Garrett got pushback too in Garrett Financial Planners. I mean, there's some of them that are out there charging AUM as well, but you know, she tolerates it. But it wasn't the original plan. Mm-hmm. And, and here it's, again, I'm speaking to the younger crowd. I'm speaking to people who are just thinking about getting in the industry or getting in the industry, trying to tell them, look, you don't have to do it the old fashioned way. You know, it's like you don't have to go to work for A.G. Edwards or Ameriprise or whatever. You don't have to pay those fees. You don't have to have clients paying the fees. You can do it the right way. You can actually be a fiduciary and align your fee with the work you're actually doing for the client. Is it hard? Yes, it is very hard. It is really, really difficult to do that. It, it kind of takes a little bit of the incentive, if you will, out of actually coming in this industry because you know, I mean, it, look, it's not a very high barrier of entry to get into the advisor industry, but you can make a lot of money doing it, right? If you're a good salesperson. And it does take that incentive away. If you actually want to be a fiduciary and you want to do what's in the best interest for the clients, you're going to come up with a fee arrangement that is right for you and right for the clients, but it's going to be really hard to implement. It really is. Uh, and I know that. And I, I appreciate the fact that they're even speaking with me and that they realize that it is. But I, I think it's important that we have this discussion. We can't just sweep it under the rug. It's just, again, the last bastion of gluttony out there is advisor fees, and somebody's got to say something, and it might as well be me. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, <laughs> what, what is your, uh, what's your outlook for this? Do you think it's going to be the next generation that pushes, pushes those fees lower, or is it, are they going to kind of migrate toward the, toward the 1% also? 
Well, I think that companies like Betterment and Wealthfront have done a fantastic job educating young people on what they really should be paying in fees. And, uh, you know, even if you don't go with uh, one of those two companies, Vanguard, Wealthfront, Betterment, the ones that are out there promoting 0. 0.25, 0. 0.3% fees, at least they get exposure to it. Young people are getting exposure to it, that this is what you should be paying. And I think that along with new advisors coming along who are starting new RIAs that have different fee models will change the industry over the next 25 years. I mean, look at indexing. Indexing mm -hmm. started in 1976, right? That's when I graduated from high school. But it really, really only began to explode in the last 20 years. It took a long, long time. And I think this is going to have the similar trajectory. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the next generation, if you will. And uh, uh, fine. You know, it, right. there'll, be more, there'll be more Rick Ferries coming along uh, long after I'm dead. And that's a good thing. Well, Rick, I think we've exhausted this topic, but for the moment, but uh, I love this topic. For I love, time um, being, bringing oh, up yeah. all we love these this different one. slices and dices and different fee models. I also, uh, I didn't know you were a former Marine. I too am a former Devil Dog, Semper Fi. Oh. I should have <laughs> known by how smart you are. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, and I'm also oh, from okay. Michigan. So, oh, you are. Yes, originally. Well, always ready to um, pick a fight, right, Jeff? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, anything else, Bruce, for uh, for Rick? No, that's uh, that. That was great. Just one note: A. G. Edwards no longer exists. Oh, <laughs> it was acquired oh, by Wells Fargo before or Wachovia, uh, which was then absorbed into Wells Fargo during the credit crisis. So, anyway, well, thanks for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Hey, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. Yes, sir. And as uh, our loyal listeners know, we launch every Monday, and we want to thank our special guests, of course. We first on, we had Jason Kane, a partner at Piper Wolf Car Kane and Conway. And then next, we had Rick Ferry of Ferry Investment Solutions. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And as our listeners know, you can find our podcast at investmentnews.com. Also, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple and please follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles, if you want to ask us questions this week, are Benji Ryder for Jeff and me, um, at BD News Guy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.